Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. And they happen to have a very large supply of cheap labor on the ranch because there's a bunch of kids and those kids don't go to school and those kids are mostly undocumented. I didn't have a social security number until I got myself one at 18. Wow. I start working in the bakery when I'm eight. By the time I'm 11, I'm basically working there full time and full time means like sometimes 14 hour days. By the time I'm 16, I'm working 16 to 20 hour days and I'm getting paid like a quarter an hour. I think eventually I got up to 75 cents an hour, which felt like pretty rad. I was like, yeah, look how rich I am. It's hard work. Like I'm waking up at two o'clock in the morning sometimes. But at one point I got my finger stuck in a bread slicer and that wasn't great. And so it's just a really dangerous environment. Everyone there is kind of okay with it. We're doing this for God. And this is better than going to school and kind of getting indoctrinated by the evil government that wants to teach you about like evolution, evolution. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're only listening and you want to see our faces, you can go to our YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can like the video to help the algorithm, leave those words of support for our guests who are coming on and bravely telling their stories, and become an advocate, a supporter, a subscriber, if you will. That would be amazing. We just hit 100,000, and we are over the and excited and grateful for all of your love and support. So today's guest, he submitted a job form, which we were really happy to hear from him. And we found out this is like the perfect time to bring him on to talk about more fundamentalist Mormons. So it's the polygamist breakoffs of the Mormon church, what I call the mainstream Mormon church where I grew up. And his specifically was the AUB. So we're going to get all into that, what that was like growing up and how he actually transitioned into the mainstream Mormon church and then eventually left all of that behind. Now he is a comedian where he talks about his experiences growing up in a cult, which is so fun. (laughs) So welcome to the show, King Benjamin. Hey, Shalise, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for bringing me on. Absolutely. You have some really funny stand-up on growing up in a cult. I watched your blowjob bit and I was cracking up. (laughs) I felt really bad for you, but also I was laughing. (laughs) What's so funny about that too is that I I thought that like everything in a cult, right? You always think you're the only one. Uh Uh-huh. And uh and since I've started telling that joke on stage, I have a bunch of people come up to me afterwards and they're like, that was totally my first blowjob too. No. Yeah, it happens. It happens all the time, which I think it makes sense because why do we call it that if, if it's that's not, not what that. you do? <laughs> If that's not what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. And we always talk about purity culture on here because it is just one of the things that always comes up when you just have zero education. Everything is demonized and taboo. You just have no idea what's going on, how to do sex, how to do anything. And so things get a little distorted and a little funny sometimes. It does. And especially in Mormon culture, one of the things that I really love about Mormons is that we're kind of kinky, like on accident. (laughs) So I've heard. Like, we don't mean to be. (laughs) We don't mean to be, but we just kind of like accidentally fall into it. Because on the subject of like purity culture, right? Purity culture really attacks one of the most 
fundamental and, and empowering parts of humanity, right? Our sexuality. Yeah. And, and so I, one of the things I love about things like blowjobs and soaking, which is kind of what a, lo- a lot of people like to make fun of Mormons for, mm-hmm. it's like life finds a way. Like you can tell us not to have sex. You can tell us that sex is bad, but we'll figure it out. Like we'll find some way to make that happen. And uh, I think that's kind of lovely and hilarious. Yeah, it's the endearing loopholes and the mental gymnastics that people do to do things that it's like not technically sex or at least in their mind, it's not technically. And so they think they're getting away with a lesser sin when in reality, it's just guys, it's sex. Soaking is sex. It's just sex. You're just you've already had sex and just have fun with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anyways, we could go on and on about purity culture, but I want to talk about your childhood growing up in the AUB, and that is the Apostolic United Brethren, right? Apostolic United Brethren, yes. So that's how you know that there were no women at the meeting where that church was named. Mm, Right. So you know a lot about the history, and I was very impressed, and so I would love it if you could give everyone else a little bit of a rundown of the split and how your church claims to be the true prophets of Mormonism. 100%. I would love to come and tell tell you and all the other mainstream Mormons about how you're wrong <laughs> and how we are right. Wait, but don't put me in that category anymore. <laughs> I'm very happily I, an Exmo. <laughs> I love that for you and I love that for me too. I like to explain Mormonism as like a big kind of monomyth, right? So it's one big idea and it's kind of introduced by Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith says, he makes a couple of claims, right? He's like, I saw God and Jesus. Mm-hmm. I have golden plates. I saw the angel Moroni. And the and the really crucial one is that angels came and gave me the authority or the priesthood to restart Jesus's church, mm-hmm. right? The right one. The right one, right? Because the thing that makes something Jesus's right church is if Jesus is the one that's actually in charge of it. And he lets us know that he's in charge of it by giving us the priesthood. Yes. And so the priesthood is really important in in Mormonism and also only for men because it's so because women do so much for us already they don't want to be burdened with the priesthood. And so only the men get the burden of the priesthood and it works out great and everyone loves it and there are no problems in the system <laughs> because of that setup. When Joseph dies, the myth immediately shatters. Right. And there are a whole bunch of groups right around him who never actually leave and come west with with Brigham Young. Right. The reorganized church, the Strangites. There are a bunch of different versions of Mormonism that kind of stay out wet or out east Mm -hmm. and sort of develop that way. But the big one that moves west is Brigham Young. Right. Brigham Young. And that eventually becomes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And at the time, they are secretly practicing polygamy. Mm -hmm. Right. It's very hush hush. They're not telling anyone about it. And it's not until about 18, I think 1850, 1860, where they finally announce that they're, that they're actually living polygamy and they do it publicly. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong. So the leaders have been practicing it for a long time. And then at some point they're like, all right, let's let the common guy in on this. Right. And what's interesting too, is that even when they allow the common people to do it, <laughs> the peasants, mm-hmm. it's only a small fraction of Mormons that end up practicing polygamy, right? It's probably, I don't know, 15 to 20%. But it's sort of seen as the higher law, right? So the idea at the time very much is if you are worthy and righteous, then you will be 
you will be blessed to have multiple spouses because you're going to need them when you become a god to populate worlds. Because this was back when Mormons were still getting planets. They've since taken that away, which I feel like is a big pull like that. What did you do? Right. That was the whole thing. That was like the thing that made Mormonism cool is, yeah, you guys can worship Jesus and go to heaven, but we're right. getting our own we're planet. We're getting planets. <laughs> like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so in my cult, um, you get to have a planet. Uh-huh. So you get to have a planet if you join if you join mine. Sorry, I, I derailed you. So they wanted polygamy so that because I have to real quick say it's because when you get your own planet, they believe or believed, I don't know, it's murky if they still want to do it or not, but you get your body back. So you are a physical being on another planet yeah. and the job of the wifey is to literally pump out thousands and millions and billions of spirit babies that then yes. go down to their own earth and get tested and tried and whatever. Right. And so this is like physical labor. And I don't think a lot of Mormons really connected the dots on that. Like I'm going to be eternally pregnant. Eternally pregnant. Hard pass. Yeah. Now, eternally pregnant as a resurrected being. So maybe being eternally pregnant as a resurrected being is awesome. Maybe. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. I, I would I would submit that probably you might want to do something else with eternity. I don't know. Maybe. I think I might want to do other things with eternity than just keep popping out babies. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're supposed to, right? That's the goal is as many spirit babies as possible, which also kind of leads to one of the most troubling kind of pieces of the myth for me uh, that is just sort of widely accepted, right? And it's this idea that we like we're spirit babies before we come down to earth. And God shows up to us and he's like, you guys, I want you to come and live with me, but you have to be worthy to do that. So I'm going to brainwash. I'm going to wipe your brains. I'm going to give you amnesia. I'm going to send you down to this planet and I'm going to test you. Mm -hmm. And if you are worthy of my love, worthy, you get to come back and live with me. And if you are not, you don't. And that is their conception of God. And that is a horribly abusive father, yeah. right? Like what kind of asshole dad is like, leave my house. And when you prove to me that you're good enough to be loved by me, you get to come back here. But also you're not going to know that you're being tested unless missionaries come to your door and you're one of the right. few who get the, the truth. Mormon theology 101. That's a really lovely conception of God. So polygamy. So back to polygamy. You got to have polygamy because you got to have lots of babies. So the Mormons go hardcore for the polygamy for, for a couple of decades. Like Brigham Young has like 51 wives. Mm -hmm. J John Taylor has like 30. Wilford Woodruff for his like 70th birthday goes down to St. George and seals 80 dead women to him. What? Yeah. For his birthday party. And so like. I mean, that's great, right? Like, I'm sure that all of those women were thrilled to be sealed eternally to a guy named Wilford Woodruff. Mm -hmm. And during that entire time, the U.S. government is kind of freaked out because they've just acquired this whole territory in Utah that is basically a polygamist compound, right? Like, it's a, it's a huge theocratic cult that just exists in the center of this, and it has a ton of power. That has a ton of money and it's doing some weird shit. So the government's <laughs> kind of scared. They really need to find a way to kind of take down their power a little bit. And so they go after polygamy, 
right? The Republican Party's like, we're going to take out this polygamy thing. That's really bad. And it was pretty bad. You know, they like to make the argument that, oh, it was just for widows. And it was just Mm -hmm. to like take care of people. And I don't know if you know this or not. I didn't. I had to learn this as an adult. But you can actually take care of women without without marrying them. them. (laughs) Yeah, it's wild. Like you're allowed to take care of a woman and not fuck her. Interesting. So you can actually do that. So they're saying, oh, it's just to take care of people. But it's not like there are quotes from Heber C. Kimball, who's a who's a member of the first presidency during that time. Awful. And an awful human, just a terrible. He gave his 14 year old daughter to Joseph Smith to secure his eternal exaltation. So fuck you, Heber. Mm-hmm. There's a quote from him basically instructing missionaries to not pick out the pretty brides before they get them to Utah. He's like, save some of the pretty little lambs for us Ew. when they get here. Gross, right? Really gross. There are accounts of missionaries going and basically labor, like basically sex trafficking, right? They would go into foreign countries. They would go to the poor and the destitute. They would tell them all this cool shit about Zion and Utah. Mm-hmm. They would sh- bring them to America. They would ship them all the way out into to Utah, which I don't know if you know what Utah was like in 1860 or 1870, but it wasn't great. It was the desert. It was the middle of nowhere. And then they were like, here you are in the middle of nowhere with none of your family and all alone. This is brother Heber. Yeah. He's going to take care of you. So the the government had some pretty good uh, reasons to be going after that. And so they were. And so there was this big fight for a long time. The members of the first presidency, they would be, they were underground. They were in hiding from the law. And so in around 1886, John Taylor was the president. So he's the third president. And he is under immense pressure, both within the church and outside of the church, to end polygamy. They're like, look, we got to end this. But the problem is, is that, the, I mean, they've been preaching for decades now that polygamy is essential to exaltation. Mm-hmm. It's the way to the celestial kingdom. It's the only way to the celestial kingdom. So you don't get to go to the celestial kingdom if you don't if you don't have multiple wives. Which I always forget to explain because Mormonism was my thing. Celestial kingdom is the highest level of heaven, friends. Right. So top, top tier. Top tier. So top tier heaven, you don't want mid tier or bottom tier, even though those two are pretty great, but you don't get to have genitals in those kingdoms. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> so you get what's called the TK smoothie, which is just like a Ken doll swipe. I forgot about that. Oh, okay. Mormonism's weird, man. It's there's fun. some, there's some, That's some fun stuff in there. So John Taylor in 1886, he's in hiding. And the story that I was taught, and this is pretty well documented that this, that this at least some version of this happened. He received a revelation from God. It's called the 1886 revelation. You can, you can look that up. It's written in his handwriting. There's really no doubt that he did in fact pen this revelation. And in the revelation, it's basically John Taylor asking God, Hey, can we get rid of polygamy? And God says, how can I revoke an eternal principle? That's convenient for John. That's convenient for John. So John is like, we're not going to do this. So the next day he has what's called the eight hour meeting which should give you an idea of just how boring the AUB is, that their founding moment is a meeting that went for eight hours. Mm -hmm. If you think a three-hour church is bad or (laughs) two-hour church, try eight-hour church. Uh And in this meeting, it was held in the home of John Woolley, who was one of of the, the staunch supporters of John Taylor. His son, Lauren Woolley, was one of John Taylor's bodyguards. And Lauren Woolley was also present at this meeting. And 
in that meeting, John Taylor presented the revelation. He rose up above the floor, like he levitated a couple of times, which is a cool party trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, if you're trying to like inspire people to that you are God, then or that you have got, like that you might should do totally it. do some levitation. That would do it. I would listen. If someone levitated in front of me, I would at least consider what they were saying while I was walking around checking for wires. Mm-hmm. And then he ordained a bunch of the men at this meeting with the sealing keys. So he basically made them, gave them the priesthood authority to seal people in polygamy, even if the church stepped away from it. So his charge to them was essentially, we may need, as a church, we may need to stop living polygamy in order to exist as an, as an organization, mm-hmm. right? We may be pressured to the point where we have to do that, but it's your job to make sure that polygamy doesn't go away. And just to clarify, John Taylor was the prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time. Okay. Yes. And then he died, and then Wilford Woodruff comes up next, and Wilford Woodruff is eventually the one who issues the manifesto, which is where, that's official declaration one, which is where the LDS Church formally says we are not practicing polygamy anymore. Now, they do it in secret for the next two prophets. Mm -hmm. So Lorenzo Snow comes next. Joseph F. Smith comes next. Both of them are secretly doing polygamy uh, really up until around 1914. Right. And then in 1914, that's when the split happens. And so most polygamists are able to sort of exist within the church up until 1914. 1914, Heber J. Grant becomes prophet. He's the first... LDS prophet that is not a polygamist. Mm. So I want everyone to kind of think about that for a little bit. There have only been like 15 LDS church prophets. And the first like five or six of them were polygamist. Has there really only been 15? I guess the church is very young and I always forget that. I don't know the exact number. I'd have to Google it. All I know is it fits pretty well on a page (laughs) and that there's a primary song about it. Uh And if it were more than 20, it would be hard to get primary kids to memorize all their names. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We'll go with 15 for now. <laughs> 15 for now. We'll, we'll fact check that after the show. Most of the polygamous sects, they go from Joseph F. Smith to John Woolley and then to Lauren Woolley. And then it sort of splinters from there. Mm-hmm. So the FLDS church, that's their line of authority. And the AUB eventually is what the AUB actually splits off of the FLDS faith around eight, around 1950. Mm. In the 50s, there's kind of a split around a guy named Joseph Musser. And so AUB follows Joseph Musser. FLDS follows the Jeffs. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's really important is this idea of authority. Who has the authority to, because in the Book of Mormon, right, there's this scripture where it talks about how there's one person that God gives complete authority to on earth, the mouthpiece. By the way, this is also how you know that you're in a cult. (laughs) Is that if you're in a cult, there's one person and that person is a hundred percent in charge. That person is chosen. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's this idea that's in the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith then claims that's me, right? To the point where he's even boasting, I'm more important than Jesus Christ. There are scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants that say, oh, Joseph Smith was, is the, the most important human to have ever existed except Jesus. Right. That's a pretty big claim to make when somebody out there invented washing hands. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a, those are pretty big words. And is this the scripture that says the one mighty and strong 
that get people to do oh, a lot of crazy things like under the banner of heaven. Maybe. I think one mighty and strong might be a different scripture, but okay. I, I am, I'm not that verse. I tell everyone that I'm the one mighty and strong <laughs> because I am the, tr- the actual true Mormon prophet because I am the only Mormon prophet that will tell you the truth about Mormonism, uh. which is that it's all made up. Top to bottom, all made up. There's no truth in it. And uh, we should clean it up and dispose of it. Something that a lot of ex-Mormons say who have done lots of research is that it is verifiably false. Verifiably false. Yes. Joseph Smith made specific factual claims that we can test and they are they are wrong. Yeah. So he said, this is the book of Abraham and it is a story of Abraham. And then we looked at it and we read it and we were like, no, this is a Hallmark card from ancient Egypt. Yes. This is like a funeral, funerary text. text. We would buy these and give them to people when someone died and be like, I'm so sorry for your loss. Right. Right. It's like a sorry note. Mormonism has been kind of a problem in the United States since its inception. And we haven't quite figured out how to deal with it yet. But I think that we have to, right? We have to kind of acknowledge that it is made up because, and when you don't acknowledge that, then you start to cause harm, right? Because then you start to have an organization like you have today in the LDS church, which is still still very sex negative, mm-hmm. still very misogynistic, still frankly very racist, and is led by a bunch of really old, out of touch men who believe something that is verifiably untrue and have access to hundreds of billions of dollars mm-hmm. and control a state. So they are making real life decisions that affect real life people and their fundamental view of the world is fucked because they live in a fantasy land. They live in a make, because it's fine that things are made up, right? I like made up things. Fucking Lord of the Rings is great, (laughs) right? It's really fun to live in fantasy land and to pretend and to play. We can do that as humans. That's fine. I actually think there's a really strong need for religious community so that we can sort of play in this imaginative sort of divine space. But we have to acknowledge, we have to be honest when we're doing it. And and so Mormonism to me is just fundamentally broken and flawed. There's not really a lot that you can redeem in it because it's built on a lie. Yeah. Joseph Smith lied and then he lied again and then he lied again and he lied again. And why did he lie? Because he wanted to have money, power, and sex. Mm-hmm. And so you can't really fix that. You can only clean that up. Which also is basically impossible because for them to clean it up, they would have to admit their mistakes and admit all the ways that they lied and deceived the the members of Mormonism because totally. I was one of them. When I found out that I had yeah. been lied to my whole life, I felt very betrayed and I was really upset. And there will be some current Mormons watching this and this is not to be offensive. It's to say, please do your research because the things that you think you know about Mormonism are probably not the entire truth or any of the truth. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to hear that. And we get people in the comments saying, you just don't know the truth. It's so sad you walked away. And I'm thinking, I get it because I've been there. I've been you. I've been the person that says, you just don't know what you're talking about. You're led by Satan. This is anti-Mormon, whatever. But please do your own research. Don't take my word for it. Don't take Ben's word for it. But anyway, we have gone into the depths of Mormonism, which is so fun and I love it and I could do it all day. But I want to hear about you, Ben. I bet you want to talk about you. Okay, let's 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 jump to me. So so because <laughs> uh, I'm actually kind of born into this very interesting space. Right. So there's this split in Mormonism 
there's the the mainstream LDS church, uh, and then there are the polygamists, right? And the polygamists really believe that they are keeping the core truths of the gospel alive, right? And in the 80s, when Under the Banner of Heaven is happening, where there's kind of this, there's a lot of interesting sort of things bubbling up in Mormonism. There's a big movement towards fundamentalism or or really kind of going back to the basics. Yeah. If you study early Mormon texts, like if you read the Journal of Discourses, if you read what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and John Taylor, what those men actually said, it's it's an inescapable conclusion that polygamy is a requirement in order to be exalted. Mm-hmm. You cannot read what they said and come away with another conclusion unless you're like, and this is what the LDS church has done is they've said, well, don't listen to them. Only listen to us. The past is in the past. The past is in the past, right? But we, the prophet will never deceive you in the present, but maybe in the past he could have. Yeah, exactly. My family history is that I'm I'm a seventh generation Mormon. So my family's been in the cult for almost 200 years. My ancestor joined in 1835. Wow. His name was Ebenezer Brown. That's like the beginning. That's the beginning. He joins in New York. Wow. Right? Okay. And he is a first generation immigrant, right? So like all cults, Mormonism preys on the vulnerable. And the vulnerable at the time were immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so imagine, imagine what's happening in my family, right? They immigrate from Scotland. They're poor. They, this boy is born. He's doesn't really fit in. His name's Ebenezer for goodness sakes. I'm sure the other <laughs> kids make fun of him and he's in New York and then he gets swept up in this religious fervor and he joins the, uh, he joins the LDS church and he goes to Kirtland. He goes to Missouri. Wow. He goes to Nauvoo. In Nauvoo, Joseph Smith dies and he, he crosses the, the plains with the saints and he's one of the early per- people who's inducted into polygamy. So he ends up having, I think, four wives and 23 children, mm. which is too many children to have. That yeah. is, that is a lot. Anyone who's ever, cared for one child for an hour knows that nobody should have 23 children. That's too many, Mm -hmm. but my ancestor did. And then his son was also a polygamist. And then their, uh, his grandson was also a polygamist. But when the LDS church stopped practicing polygamy in like the 19 early 1900s, my family went with the, they went with the LDS faith. So they were like, okay, we're going to stick with that. They didn't, they didn't join any of the polygamists. They, they were staunch uh, members of the LDS faith for most of the 20th century. I'm actually kind of learning about this right now because I just got my grandmother's journal, my mom's oh, or wow. my dad's mom's memoir. Uh-huh. And so I'm, I'm half, that's that little piece of paper over there. I'm kind of halfway through it, but she was born in Utah. She was raised in, in Lovell in a small town in Wyoming. And she met my grandfather there. And they got married and they were LDS. She tells a story of a librarian, a ward librarian, who is talking to them about the principle and talking to them about the idea of plural marriage, that plural marriage is a is a requirement for exaltation, right? This is in the mainstream LDS church in the 80s. There's a lot of thinking like that, right? A lot of talk because we're sort of rediscovering a lot of these older, these older texts. Mm-hmm. And eventually my grandparents, they decide that they need to find the the right place, the place to get a plural wife with the proper authority. So they start kind of shopping around to the different groups. They go to the Kingston group. They go to the FLDS group. They eventually go to the AUB. And when they're at the AUB, they feel nice feelings in their body. And they interpret that as evidence from God that this is the, this is the one with the authority, right? My grandma tells this story of someone coming up and like giving her a big hug the first time that they were at church there, giving her a big hug and like whispering in her ear, don't worry, the priesthood is here. You found it. 
Oh, that's a little creepy. It's a little creepy. Yeah, it's a little uh, a little creepy, but my my family ate that shit right up. Uh-huh. So they were like, this is great. And so my grandparents and then a number of their children, including my dad, decided that they they all joined the, the AUB. And when they joined the AUB, uh, my dad was courting a woman in Wyoming. She was a widow. And they decided they were going to join together, but they were, they felt like they were being told, they were being prompted by the spirit to wait to get married until they found a second wife that they were supposed to kind of go into it all together. Huh. And so they didn't get married. They kind of came down to Utah to go to school. And at school, they met my mom. My mom was quite a bit younger. Uh, my dad was a return missionary. He was like 26. Uh, this other one was like 24. My d- mom was like 19. She was fresh out of high school. And she had also been kind of taught her whole life. You know, they talked about polygamy. They talked, they used to talk in the LDS church. They don't so much anymore, but they used to talk about eventually this principle would come back, mm. right? They talk about that plural marriage would come back and that we would have to live it again, right? It was, uh, it was kind of, it was a, like a fun thing that people would talk about on dates. Interesting. They'd be like, so if plural marriage comes back, would you live it? Um, which is, I think, just really, that really turns up the mood for soaking. <laughs> but also what people have to understand is even though they disavowed it, right, you still practice it in heaven. It's still a requirement in heaven. So right. that was like one lesson out of the entire year where they revealed to us in Sunday school. I think it was young women, some like 12 or 13. They're like, oh, so by the way, you guys are going to be polygamists in heaven. And I was like, mm, sorry, what? And I remember being really upset about that. And then they just didn't speak of it again. And so we just kind of throw it away and we're like, oh, it's fine. I probably won't have to do it. Or or they say, don't worry, your heart will be softened. And when you get to heaven, it'll all make sense. And I'm like, we'll see. It'll magically be okay. We'll see. All of which is code for don't listen to your feelings right now. Your feelings are bad. Listen to what we're telling you. Right. Again, for those of you listening, if someone ever does that to you, if someone ever tells you, don't listen to your feelings, listen to me, that person is trying to manipulate you. Yeah. Possibly into a cult. Knowingly or unknowingly. Knowingly or unknowingly. So just always trust your feelings. Like they, those those guys are, they're there for to, to help you out. My mom decided uh, after dating dad for a while that uh, she would join the polygamous group as well. She thought when she joined that the AUB was sort of like known and approved of by the LDS church which is oh, not true. Now, the yeah, no. AUB does claim that they are the, uh, they're the priesthood, right? So they are, they're the priesthood and the, they say that the LDS church is the true church, but it's sort of like fallen down. It's not, it's not living all of the principles and they are sort of keeping them safe, safe and hiding. They're like the true prince in exile. And mm-hmm. eventually they're going to come back and take over and everything's going to be great. So we have that to look forward to. And so she joins, her parents find out about it. There's a huge explosion um, because her parents are very strict, active LDS members. And they kind of go to great lengths to make sure that every single member of my dad's family who joins the polygamous sect is excommunicated. And into that very happy family dynamic, I'm born. (laughs) Wow. I pop onto the scene. And at this point, my my mom has been pretty isolated by her family and my dad and, and his family, they kind of pop around in a couple different places, but they end up settling. They end up going back to my family's ranch in Wyoming. So my family had had kind of a homestead in Wyoming. 
on my dad's side, going back to like the early 1900s, the second Ebenezer Brown moved up in like 1912 and he built like a little cabin. He had like this little homestead. And my grandfather, my dad's dad had, had sort of a lot of that land had been lost and he'd kind of made it his mission to gather it all up, up again. And that was kind of encouraged by the leader of the AUB, whose name was Owen Allred. And he said, he was like, look, uh, we need you to like acquire as much of this land as possible because we need the ranch to be a place of refuge in the last days so that Mm. when the calamities are happening, people have a place to flee to. And I think what Owen didn't understand is that even if the world is ending, nobody wants to flee to Lovell, Wyoming. Like we would rather die in Boise. (laughs) (laughs) Not Boise. (laughs) Or Salt Lake, like somewhere more interesting. So my dad moves onto the ranch when I'm about three years old. And that he kind of goes there to sort of help build it up to kind of be this this safe place. And that's when things get a little bit uh, intense for my family, because what happens is that they are they're really isolated from the wider community. The town of Lovell is part of the Mormon corridor, so it's very prominently LDS. They had been within that community for most of their lives. And when they would left, they'd caused a lot of hurt feelings. And so they'd been really ostracized. So nobody really Mm. talked to us. We were supposed to not let anyone know who we were. I remember being told when we would like go to the grocery store, go to the library, like don't talk about polygamy. Don't, don't let people know that you're polygamist because they could take you away, right? You could be, you could be taken away, which is not true. It turns out that it's actually really, really hard to take children away from their parents. Right. And, uh, and frankly, that may have been good for some polygamous families, perhaps even mine. Because they eventually start a bakery, right? They start a bakery on the ranch because the ranch can't actually support itself. So they start a bakery to kind of offset the cost. And they they get a deal delivering bread and cookies and cinnamon rolls to Yellowstone National Park mm-hmm. that brings in some pretty good money. And they happen to have a very large supply of cheap labor on the ranch because there's a bunch of kids. And those kids don't go to school. And those kids are mostly undocumented. I didn't have a social security number until I got myself one at 18. Wow. I start working in the bakery when I'm eight. By the time I'm 11, I'm basically working there full time. And full time means like sometimes 14 hour days. By the time I'm 16, I'm working 16 to 20 hour days. And I'm getting paid like a quarter an hour. I think eventually I got up to 75 cents an hour, which felt like pretty rad. I was like, yeah, look how rich I am. And I'm doing it kind of with the understanding that I'm building up, I'm building the kingdom of God, right? I'm I'm creating this place of refuge and safety. And it's it's hard work. Like I'm waking up at two o'clock in the morning sometimes, sometimes in the middle of the winter, I'm walking down into a cold bakery. I'm starting up an oven. I'm using the oven heat to kind of warm the bakery and me. I'm working with very large industrial mixers as a, as a teenager. We have these big machines that we put a, like a whole bunch of dough and they have these blades that come up. We have this machine called a sheeter that has these big rollers that kind of rolls and kneads the dough into bread. So we don't have to do it by hand, but it's dangerous because if your feet, if your fingers get caught in there, they kind of get mm. fucked up. And that never happened to me, but that happened to someone that I was working with when I was right there. And there are other injuries that happen. At one point, I got my finger stuck in a bread slicer and that wasn't great. And so it's just a really dangerous environment and it's a really hard environment, but everyone there is kind of okay with it because we're doing this for God. And this is better than going to school and kind of getting indoctrinated by the evil government that wants to teach you about like gay people and evolution. 
and socialism. Yeah. So I kind of want to get into your head a little bit at that age. By the time you were eight, you were working in this bakery. How many siblings did you have at that point? Were you getting along with your siblings? Did you enjoy having two mothers? What was that like? Yeah. So by the time I'm eight, there are nine children. Okay. Where are you in the mix? I'm on the older end. So my other mom, she has a son from her previous marriage. And then when they get married all together, they get pregnant at the same time. So my mom and my other mom would get pregnant basically at the same time. And so there were like a bunch of twins. Oh, wow. So there's me and my brother. And then right after us, two years later, there are two sisters. Two years later, there's a brother and sister. And then two years later, there's a brother and sister. So by, I mean, by eight years in, there are nine children and eight of them are under the age of eight. Which is a lot. Wow. Right? You know, I can remember being three and four years old and I got along fine with my siblings. I, I care. I care about them. But I also felt like I'm one of the older kids. So it's my job to kind of take care of these mm-hmm. siblings. So I don't really see, especially my younger siblings, it's hard to see them as like a brother or sister. They're more like a niece or a nephew. Mm. And I struggle with a relationship with my other mom because there was there's always a significant amount of jealousy. If I can maybe just take you into the world, the dynamic, what like the way that we were living. Yeah. Right. We were in a tiny little three bedroom trailer that had one big room on one end and another big room on the other end. And then kind of a, a small room in the middle and then like a living room, uh, kitchen, dining area. With eight kids? But at that point, no. Okay. This is kind of early on. And it's got my mom's, my mom is in one side, my other mom's in the other side, and my dad is going back and forth, right? So he's a couple nights here, and then he's a couple nights there. And it's just Mm. like, it's not far, right? It's like, this is a tiny little trailer. So it's like, right down the hall, that's happening. And then, then we have, and at this point we do, we have probably a five-year-old boy. We have two three-year-old boys. And then we have two baby girls. And we're all in that living environment, right? So if you imagine the kind of ways that humans would sort of step on each other and kind of the common, like, you know, just the way, like when you're in human relationships, like you step on each other's toes, things happen. Um, Now add that, that there's this dynamic where the, there's the split attention of this man going back and forth between the women. There's this, there's this, unconscious but very real competition for his affection Mm -hmm. and time and there's real jealousy between the two even though that's not sort of acknowledged uh and that kind of kind of goes under and what that went under as is uh treatment of the other wives children oh no my other mom was was quite cruel to me and there's i i think in large part that came from from a sense of there are all these feelings that she feels that she can't express. Yeah. Right. That that are bad. And so she can't really do anything with that. And so that energy is just kind of like churning in her. And then there's, here's this kid who's not hers, but is there and is like a kid and kids are, kids have basically two programs, break shit and see what happens. Right? That's how we're wired. That's what we're supposed to do. So I'm running around breaking shit and seeing what happens. And so it's really easy for all that energetic discharge to come out on, onto me. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was, it was gnarly, right? She would, I would get slapped around. I would get grabbed and, and, and pushed around. 
Um, I would get cayenne put in my mouth if I said something uh, that wasn't okay. And um, so not a great environment for, for a child. And so there, there was that. And then there was just kind of the general neglect of when you have a ton of kids, you don't have the, the emotional or mental or even physical resources to give them what they need, mm-hmm. right? Like kids are, um, <laughs> kids are, uh, kids are a whole package, right? There's so much. It's not just that you need to feed them and keep them a lot safe physically. You've got to help them emotionally process, right? You've got to be there. You, you have to be able to show up for them consistently. Otherwise they don't attach well. And mm-hmm. so I, I very quickly, uh, developed an avoidant attachment style. I was like, fine. If you guys are, if you guys aren't going to take care of me, I'll, I've got this. Right. And I yeah. remember feeling that way when I was like four or five, like a very oh. young, a very young child, just feeling like, okay, I'm going to have to take care of myself in this world. And in some ways that wasn't actually that bad because the flip side of this is that I lived on, I lived out in the country, right? I lived on a ranch. There was actually a pretty cool place to be. There were trees that you could climb. I could run around outside and do whatever I wanted. There were these really cool sandstone boulders that were huge. They were like, they would tower over, but you could climb up them and you could kind of jump between one and the other. And, and so there was a lot of really fun, you know, places to kind of play and be. And especially as I've, as I've kind of heard what my peers got to do at my age, which was go to a jail and sit down and have to ask permission to pee mm-hmm. and then learn stuff that they didn't care about from someone who hated them. Uh, you know, there's, you, you pick, you pick the things that you've got to deal with, right? Pros and cons. There's pros and cons. There's pros and cons to both. On the one side, I think I would have really liked school. On, on the other, on the other hand, it's pretty cool to be able to kind of run around and play outside and do whatever you want as long as you can't, as long as the adults don't find you. And when there are tons of kids and a lot of property, it's pretty easy to not get found by adults. So what was your school like? Because I know that you were homeschooled, so you had some sort of education. So what did that look like? That varied a lot. So so it, homeschool really depended on kind of on how my mom was feeling, right? So if she was if she was feeling good, we might have kind of some formal classes. Um, and if she wasn't feeling good, it might be like, here's this book, go read it. And it was usually kind of that. And especially when the bakery started up, everything sort of flowed around that. So for like a couple of years, we did kind of a co-op thing with, uh, this is when I was more in high school. We did kind of a co-op thing with a couple of other community members where we'd like all meet in someone's basement. And then the different moms would come in and teach different classes. But when that was happening, I was usually asleep because I'd been up since three o'clock in the morning working in the bakery. And then yeah. I come to school and then I couldn't, then I couldn't really sleep. Um, I tell people like, as an example, like the, the way that I learned algebra two is that my mom handed me an algebra two textbook and said, read this and come ask me if you have questions. Mm-hmm. And she has at this point, I don't know, like 13 other children that she's working with and I'm already avoidantly attached. So I'm not going to yeah. go ask her for, for help, but I did actually learn something really important, which is that the answers to the algebra two questions are in the back of the book. Right. And I've, I've used that trick more than I've actually used algebra two. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm wondering, because you said off camera previously that you weren't allowed to have friends who were not in the AUB and you just mentioned there were other families. So how many other families would you say were in your kind of small community in Wyoming? 
So it varied before I was 10. So kind of zero to 10, there was, there was sort of the Browns and, and kind of there. So it was like my grandpa's family and then a couple of his kids who'd also became polygamist. And then there were, there was another family that had joined them and then another family who, who moved from England actually and joined, uh, as well. So there were kind of three pro, three major families and we all had like church together. That was like the highlight because we were on the ranch and that was our entire world, right? We didn't really go into town at all. That's where we lived. But then once a week we'd go to church and church was usually in the garage of one of these people. So one of these families had a garage and they'd like put some carpet down and we got like some, some old LDS chairs and some old LDS hymnals. And we had like a little, <laughs> like a little rolling pulpit that home we put church. In, like a little home church, like in, in someone's garage. Um, and it was super boring. Like we'd go there and we'd, uh, we'd do the sacrament correctly, which is that we'd all drink out of one cup. Wait, hold on. I didn't know about this. Is that how they used yeah. to do it back in the That's day? That's how they used to do it. Yeah. One cup. Mm, yum. <laughs> yeah. It was like, they called it, they called it one word, one cup. I don't, they didn't call it that. They didn't call it that, but uh, yeah, one one cup. And then they'd also they'd also do, and this was really important, right? And this kind of speaks to, in Mormonism, we like to one-up each other in, uh-huh. in ways that don't matter, right? So we like to demonstrate how much better we are at being Mormon by showing how we're doing something that is hard and maybe dangerous, but doesn't matter at all. Like it doesn't matter in any way how you drink the sacrament. Uh-huh. Right. One cup, multiple cups that has no bearing on your morality. But we really thought it did because the correct way is this is like unified, right? This is one body. And if you split Jesus's blood up into all these little tiny cups, then it's like that's division. Interesting. And we did the same thing with the the bread. Right. So in the LDS church, they break the bread and then they bless it. And in the AUB, we bless the bread and then we break it because that is the correct way to turn this bread into Jesus's body and then eat it. Interesting. And on that same token, did you do temple rituals that Joseph Smith did back in the day? Yes, we did. Um, And we did them full on, like we would do blood oaths. We would fucking cut throats, pull hearts out. We were doing basically what the, the, the way the LDS church changed the endowment in like the early nineties. Yeah. They never did. So they're still doing, they're still doing blood oaths in, um, in the AUB. So I have to clarify, that does not mean you're actually spilling your blood. It's basically you pretend to do it and you say, if I were to spill the secrets of the temple, I would slit my throat and cut up my bowels, right? Is that how you guys did it? Yep. Slit your throat. And actually, there are echoes of it in the LDS endowment, right? So when you do that sign, right, that's because you did this. Uh, and when you do this one, this bottom one, like you've, you probably have wondered, like, why are we putting our hand like that in cupping shape? It's because we pulled out our heart. And then there's the the last one, which is that you put, I'm probably going to go to hell for showing these, but who cares? You go there, right? And that's because you disembowel yourself, right? So that's, so that, that, and that, those signs that are part of the covenants that are made in the LDS temple are these echoes of these very violent things. And uh-huh. if you think for just a little bit, right? Like this is sort of speaks to, speaks to the kind of the nefarious nature and core of Mormonism, that it's actually quite dangerous. Because imagine, like, essentially what Brigham Young did is they built, after Joseph Smith dies, they build the temple really fast, and then they put thousands of people through this temple. And in that 
temple, they are cutting their throat, pulling their heart out, disemboweling themselves, which if you think about it that energetically, like from a conscious perspective, we're killing our voice, we're pulling our hearts out and we're disemboweling ourselves. Like that's some, that's some gnarly magic shit that yeah. they're doing and that we're doing for generations. And they did that with thousands of people. And then they went out into the desert with these people. Mm-hmm. Thousands of miles away from the nearest government or, or settlement. That's, that's a scary thing that happened, right? That's a scary thing to do to a human. And I've actually, I've felt that, right? I actually, I was just at Burning Man last week and Burning Man is like kind of the opposite of Mormonism and the, it's like, uh, it's like a cult in the opposite direction. Yeah. But while I was there, I was interacting with this, with this kind of like energy healer and she's kind of super woo and it was really fun. Um, but we were talking about like the, the energetic power of generations of humans cutting their throats, pulling their hearts out, disemboweling themselves, right? Like there's a cost to that. There's an energetic and generational cost to Mormonism that I don't think we fully understand that we're carrying in our own bodies. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if magic is real or not, right? I don't know. I don't know all of the things. If there's one thing I've learned from my Mormon experience, it's it's that I can be profoundly wrong about (laughs) everything. Right. So I, all of my opinions are loosely held, but when I imagine, I do think that humans, I do think that we are, we're magical beings, right? We create, we're, when we believe that something is true, that has real impact on our environments and on our lives. Sure. And, and so I, I, I just often think about the entanglements, kind of the energetic attachments or the different ways that we've been sort of allowing kind of witchcraft to kind of take over our lives and it doesn't have to, right? Fucking, I'm not going to cut my throat there. I would never cut my throat for an organization. What the hell are you talking about? Right. That's gross. It's something that they just did unknowingly and kind of like, oh, this is what we do now because the temple is so highly regarded that by the time you actually get there, because it takes a long time to become worthy and ready to go. And they tell you that's the goal of Mormonism is making it to the temple because that's another requirement of getting into the highest level of heaven. And then once you get there, you're like, oh, this is what we're doing. And you're completely confused. And most people are really scared, but you've come so far. So you kind of just have to go along with it. Right. And you're surrounded by all of this was my experience going through the temple. So I, I never actually went through. I, I joined the LDS church before I went through the, the polygamous temple, which I'm really bummed about because I wish I'm getting the I'm getting the information from my sister who did go through. But I really wish that I would have seen it because I, I think it would have been fun. But even in the LDS church, right, when I was going through the temple, I, I remember this moment just kind of sitting around and, and feeling so, I'm like, this is so weird. Mm-hmm. This is so weird. I just wanted to stand up and be like, guys, we are dressed up in weird clothes. <laughs> None of this makes sense. I don't understand why we're doing this with our hands. It doesn't make sense. It's not meaningful. I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. But you're surrounded by all of your family who's all calm, who's all sitting there like, oh, isn't this so great? We love this. And uh-huh. so again, it's this, it's this, it's, it's peer pressure, right? It's yeah. actually this very contrived, very deliberate experience that puts you, that makes you feel certain feelings that are literally your body's 
nervous system telling you something is fucked up. Mm -hmm. Get out. Your body's literally telling you that. And then your entire family and your entire community has conspired to tell you to ignore that feeling. Yeah. And that is, that is evil, right? That's an evil thing to do to a human because you've just gaslit them to an incredible degree. You've just mm-hmm. harmed this human to an incredible degree where they can't, not only can they not trust their own bodies, but they can't trust their own families and they can't trust their community to, to be truthful to them. And, and then when we leave, everyone's just like, oh, well, you're just, you just don't get it. No, we do get it. We get it. We know what happened there. You guys all got dressed up in super weird clothes and you did some weird things with your hands. And for some reason, we all stood in a circle and cried to God. And, and that made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about your transition into regular Mormonism. But first, is there any other thing that you wanted to talk about things that you liked or disliked about being in the AUB as you grew up? Maybe that's dating. Maybe that's um, starting to notice how the women are being treated or anything that you want to mention that's significant about the AUB specifically. Yeah. So one of the things that I am kind of profoundly grateful for in, in the journey that I went on, the experience that I had is that even though, even though there were a lot, there's lots about being labor trafficked in a bakery that sucks. So I don't want to like advocate for that for people. But one of the things that that meant for me is that I, because I worked in the bakery, I ended up actually spending more of my formative time and more of my just childhood surrounded by women. So my mom's all worked in the bakery. My aunts all worked in the bakery. My grandma's worked in the bakery. Most of the people when I was working were who worked in the bakery were women. And so I spent a lot of time around women. I would kind of listen to what they were talking about and hear them talking about their world and their experiences. And I didn't, it made my little body angry sometimes to think about and to hear about some of the ways that they were being treated and to hear the way, to sort of notice the way that they would talk when they were by themselves and the way they would talk when there were men present. Sure. Can you give some examples of the ways you didn't like they were being treated? Yeah. So, I mean, my, my grandpa, there's one thing that I remember where he would say things like, oh, I guess it's time for me to go home and spank my wife. Mm. And then like he'd go home and spank grandma. And there was kind of like, there was like sort of like it was a joke, but also I could tell that my grandma didn't like that. Yeah. It wasn't like a fun, kinky sexual thing. It was, she needs to be punished for something. It was like, she needs to be, or, or there was just sort of this really what it was. It wasn't even that. Cause like, I mean, huh, I'm kind of kinky now fucking spank away. Go for it. <laughs> But what I remember is like my my grandma didn't want that to happen, right? And so it wasn't really even about spanking. It wasn't really even about that. What it was, it was was about overriding her boundary and letting her know that she couldn't stop it, right? There There was a lot of violence. And I don't think that that was maybe even conscious in my grandpa's mind. I don't think that he was aware that that's what he was doing. I think that he was running a program of you make women submit to you. Yeah. Again, in Mormonism, we have the thing, this thing called the priesthood, the power to act in God's name. And we give that to men and we don't give that to women. Mm-hmm. And what that means functionally is that men don't have to listen to women. Why would they? They get, they can listen to God and God is way better than women. So 
that's just the way that it is. And so we don't really have to listen to them. So I'd hear, I just hear them sort of complaining about like not being listened to or not like not feeling like they had access to like exercise their power. There was also this sort of tension in me of like, well, I'm going to have to be that, right? Like Mm -hmm. I, I could see this model of a man that I was going to be expected to be. And I didn't like it. I didn't like how it looked. I didn't like how it felt. I didn't like how lonely it was. And, and so I was, I think I was really primed to be open to a different way of experiencing Mormonism. And so when I was about 17, my family decided that it was time for me to go to college. And that wasn't because all of us were going to college. That was because I had a very specific mission, uh, which was to become a lawyer to protect them and also to save America Mm. because- Mormonism and especially fundamentalism is also there's a real strong like alt-right kind of like rah-rah America line of of thinking in there. And so we were like, America is becoming increasingly liberal and that's bad. And so we've got to we've got to prepare to to protect it from uh socialized medicine and gay people and what else were we protecting it from? Oh, feminists, intellectuals, and gays. Intellectuals? Right? Yeah, intellectuals. You know, people who uh, who study evolution, you know, they're very smart, but they have been misled by Satan. Of course. And so they send me to college and I go to I go to a very small like liberal arts school in southern Utah. That's almost like 90 percent LDS Mormon, like mainstream Mormon. Mm -hmm. And I start to interact with a bunch of people who are for really for the first time who are not AUB, but are LDS. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was like. Like the whole world kind of, I was like, oh my gosh, there's a way to be, to be Mormon that doesn't have all of this baggage that I, I struggle with. So there was the misogyny. There was also the racism. The AUB is, is still incredibly racist. Um, they believe that if you're black, that's because you were, uh, you were not valiant in the preexistence and that war in heaven. Mm-hmm. You didn't even pick a side. You just kind of sat and waited mm-hmm. and that you are basically banned from the priesthood and from exalting ordinances. You can have saving ordinances. You can be baptized, but you can't be exalted. And that's, by the way, that's like standard Mormon belief 50 years ago. Right. Right. Before God changed his mind about black people in 1978. Yeah. I'm seeing this. And and while I'm at college, I get this really cool opportunity to go to Uganda for, for a summer. And so I'm surrounded. I'm suddenly the minority, right? I'm suddenly the one white person surrounded by all of these black people. And like my whole, like my whole world cracks open. And I'm just like, I, there's nothing about me that is better or more worthy or more righteous or more anything than any of these people. Mm. I'm the same as them. They're the same as me. And, and so I come back from that experience and I'm, I'm kind of in a funky spot. I don't really know what my, what my next steps are. I don't really know what I'm going to do. I start dating a woman who is, who's LDS. And so we start trying to figure out, okay, we've got to really make a, make a decision here. And eventually I decide to join the LDS church because for me, it felt like all my life I'd had sort of this tension in my body between sort of this natural kind of soft, tender, compassionate little boy that just wants to love everybody and just wants everyone to be happy and to have fun and to be okay. And I felt that in the, there was something kind of penetrating me from above this truth that said, yeah, but that doesn't work for 
black people and that doesn't apply to women and that and I felt this real tension of like oh what do I do with that and so it felt like a way that I could sort of maintain most of my construct of how the world works yeah and then step into the compassionate person that is really more who I was, right? So I joined. Um, that was a big deal for my family. They were not happy, right? Um, because I'd I'd actually gotten a patriarchal blessing in the AUB, where it had been prophesied that my role was to actually unite the church and the priesthood back together. So that big split that I was born into, yeah. Before I before I left the AUB, the patriarch gave me a blessing. He was like, "Your destiny is to bring those two together." Um, which I have. So you were supposed to be the one mighty and strong to restore I the was true church. Wow, Ben. And you I were was. like, hard pass. <laughs> Actually, what I was, first I was like, hard pass. And now I'm just like, okay, yeah, that is true. I am the true Mormon prophet. <laughs> and Mormonism is made up. You guys, I, I am the one mighty and strong. It's me. I have a, a third eye beanie, so obviously, obviously it's true. I also, incidentally, have a golden plate. You do. So Joseph Smith wouldn't show his golden plates, but I do, in fact, have a golden plate that I pulled out of the ashes of the temple at Burning Man, which I think, <laughs> I think qualifies me to be the prophet. So it qualifies you if you can translate it. I can translate. I'll translate the shit out of it. <laughs> I've got, I've got I've got a hat I've got a rock no problem oh my um. gosh guys so if you don't know Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon with a seer stone like a, a rock in a hat and he put his head into a top hat and said that the words appeared and the prophets have now explained that it's like when your iPhone lights up and you can read it in a dark room so fun fact right which is isn't that so fun and cool that rather than like I don't know telling Joseph Smith how to make an iPhone so that everyone can do that. <laughs> they were like, no, you get to have the special secret rock iPhone. Uh-huh. Only you and never show anyone. I'll show you my golden plate. No problem. I'll go grab it right after this interview. You know, the bummer thing is they have that seer stone in their possession, right? The Mormon church has the seer stone, yet yeah, no one it. can use it, oddly enough. I think I think that I really want that. I actually so I'm I'm sort of joking but I'm also kind of not cuz I think that Mormonism as since it's made up, we need to clean it up. And like part of that cleanup is we need to uh loudly I'm just going to keep yelling about how it's made up until the LDS church finally caves and admits <laughs> that they're wrong. Good luck. And then oh, I you have you you don't quite understand how obnoxious I can be. And I've got I've got some pretty Pretty obnoxious plans planned for them. And also, like, I think it's also just part of the conversation. Like, if they get to claim to be Russell Nelson, think about this for a little bit. Russell Nelson. Current prophet. Current prophet is a, is an old, racist, misogynistic man, right? He was a member of a church that banned people based on the color of their skin. For longer than he has been a member that hasn't done that, mm -hmm. right? He's like 78 or 93 or 150 years old. I don't know. I did the math once. <laughs> For most of his life, the church was like, yeah, if you can't, you can't, you can't be, you can't be uh, a member and be black. Yeah. And now they're doing that to gay people. Yeah. So they haven't learned. They haven't gotten better. And yet we're all just kind of like out here pretending like they're really nice men. They're really kind and lovely. No, they're not. They're cruel. 
and they're out of touch and they don't listen to women, to people of color, to trans people. They don't listen to anyone. Mm -hmm. They only listen to what their little bodies tell them and their little bodies were programmed in 1935. Yeah. And so they're taking all this 1935 wisdom and they're presenting it as God. And so if they get to do that, I get to tell them that I'm actually the true Mormon prophet and that the truth of Mormonism is that it's a lie and that we should fix it and clean it up. Yeah, I think one of the major problems within Mormonism is you can't just replace a prophet whenever you feel like it. If you feel like they're not doing the right thing, they die and then the next one in line steps in. So it's really just a church that's 50, 60 years behind its time because of the men who are running it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which is why one of the things that I'm going to do in October is I'm going to actually pr present myself as an alternative. Um, so, you know, every every October we vote. So I'm just going to cruise around Temple Square you with a sign that just says, vote for, vote for me for profit, just so that everyone has options. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, a lot of people protest, especially around General Conference. And it the thing is, with the, the protesters specifically – it tends to make them feel more in the right because they're like, see, we're being persecuted. That's Satan. Why would Satan try and persecute a church that wasn't true? And it just makes them double down even more. Yeah, which is why which is why my angle isn't to tell them that I'm right. My angle is to just make fun of them. <laughs> and also okay. be like, look, look, you can do you want look, look, you guys, to all of the active Mormons that are listening, I just wanna I just wanna make a really sincere appeal to you. You don't have to live in a religion that tells you that it's okay for a prophet to marry a 14-year-old just because God told him to. You could live in a religion that doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. So you don't actually have to defend that. You don't have to defend Joseph Smith anymore. You don't have to defend all of these really gross and uncomfortable practices that make you feel icky, right? You don't have to defend lying for the Lord or banning people because of their skin color or their sexual orientation. You don't have to defend uh, disowning and kicking out trans kids so that they kill themselves in record numbers in Utah. Mm -hmm. You don't have to support those things. You can come join my version of Mormonism where we just party and laugh and we're literally the great and spacious building. But I promise you, it's way cooler than you were told. It's actually a lot of fun. The great and spacious building. The It's a little story that we were all told about. <clears throat> Hold to the rod, the iron rod, which is, yes, it's a real thing. Yes. Uh, and if you let go and you go to the great and spacious building where they're having a party and a grand old time, you will be lost forever. So you have to stay on the straight and narrow path. I digress. So here's the thing. A lot of people tend to say, well, the people are imperfect, but the gospel is true. And I would just like to put this in anyone's head, whoever's watching. What is the gospel if not what the people preach it to be? Like, what is the gospel? If we're not, if Joseph Smith wasn't perfect, then what is the gospel if not what he restored to the earth, which is essentially what he wrote down, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So when people try to defend the gospel as like this intangible true thing, I'm thinking, well, what is it then? Can you define it? Because it's all 
what the people are saying it is and then changing their mind and saying that it's not. And it doesn't make any sense. And so I want to know from you, Ben, what was it that made you realize, wow, even mainstream Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is not true at all? Well, um, it was when it, it kind of, when Mormonism kind of failed me in a spectacular fashion. So right after the birth of my second child, I got really sick. I got the flu. I was working a lot. I was, so I was at a significant amount of stress. We just introduced a new baby and then I got the flu mm. and I was sick for like a week and it was really difficult for me to keep any kind of fluids down. And then I got better and I started feeling a little bit better and I went to work. And when I was at work, I just kind of forgot to drink that day. And so when I came back home, I, I was feeling a lot of confusion. I wasn't doing very well. My body was kind of like twitching in weird ways and we weren't really sure what was going on. And, and I was kind of out of it. Now I would liken it to like, it felt like I was maybe high or something, but at the time I had no context for, for what this was. Right. I just felt really weird. My wife at the time, she thought based on her training as a, as a good LDS member that I might have a demon that I might have Satan inside of me. I'm sorry, what? Yes. So she was like, Ben has a demon. And so she called up her the, her bishop and she was like, I think that my husband has a demon inside of him. And rather than be like, oh, no, that's probably not true. He was like, bring him over and I'll call the stake president. And so the stake president and the bishop uh, in the bishop's house tried to exercise a demon out of me. Uh- and I didn't like that very much. And I was also uh, like in uh, in a break, like I was like crazy. And so they uh, they kind of like kept trying to bless me. It kept not working. Eventually, I end up in the hospital um, after I punched the bishop in the face, which I feel like I did that for and in behalf of all of the Mormons who have ever had cause or reason to want to punch a bishop in the face. <laughs> I have done that for you. Okay, wait, I... I need to understand what a Mormon exorcism looks like because this is the first time I'm hearing of this. Because in my Mormon experience, that was very much not a thing, like the exercising demons thing. They basically just said, stay away from ghost stories. The devil is real, that type of thing. But I've never heard of a bishop doing an exorcism. Was it just like a normal hands on the head prayer? Just like a blessing, just hands on hands on the head. And they just kept doing it. So they they took me into a room. They separated me from everybody. And at this point, I'm kind of like, I'm I'm looping. Like I'm right. what ends up happening when I end up in the hospitals, we find out that I was just severely dehydrated. And severe dehydration works like it's like a it's like someone had whacked me across the head with a two by four. Mm-hmm. I was cognitively I was out right. I was in in a different place. I was like touching the the magnets on the on the on the refrigerator, and I was like, I think that I can feel the spirit of God in these magnets. Oh my gosh! Like I needed some serious medical attention right. quickly because my body was dying. And they were like, obviously, I mean this. This is like a, this is like a demon. So they, yeah, they put their hand, they took me in this room. They put their hands on my, on my head and they kept trying to bless me. And my wife, eventually she left the room. And when that happened, I was like, I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be with my wife where it feels safe and comfortable. So I stood up to leave and they grabbed me and forcibly put me back down in the chair so they could continue to. And I tried to do it again and they pulled me back. And so I turned around and I punched the bishop in the face oh my gosh. because I wanted to leave. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was 
I wasn't myself. An ambulance comes, I go to the hospital. They end up pumping me full of Benadryl because they're like, we don't even know what's happening, but they fill me up with fluid. And, and then I start to kind of like come back to myself. And that, that experience was pretty traumatic. It was pretty scary, especially for someone who like, I didn't grow up going to doctors or hospitals, right? That was mm. a fairly new, like I, I, I was sort of groomed to kind of mistrust them. And then to have, to have kind of like such an extreme experience that I didn't really understand what was happening was pretty scary. But when it all kind of, when we all kind of figured it out, we're like, oh, this was just dehydration, which is literally like the simplest solution ever. Mm-hmm. I had this moment where I kind of realized something, which is that I had two men who claimed to have not just like a passing connection to God, the literal power of God to heal and to speak for God. And they were putting their hands on me and they were channeling God. And they were like, this person has a devil in him. We need to cast the devil out rather than, oh, brother Brown, you're dehydrated. Right. Here's a glass of water, right? It would have been so easy for God to be like, the dude's dehydrated. (laughs) give him some, give him some cranberry juice, you know? And, and that didn't happen. And so I was kind of, I was sort of in this space where I was like, I've always tried to live my life righteously, right? Doing the things that I should do. I, in that moment, I went to my priesthood authority. So I did everything right, right? I followed every, I did every single right thing in the book and, and it let me down. It let me down in a way that was like so fundamental and, and like, and, and sort of grounded in reality, right? I needed water, which is the simplest thing in the world, right? It's the most basic. It's like the second most basic human need. I needed water and the church told me I had a devil in me. Mm -hmm. And if that is not a perfect, just like microcosm of what is wrong with Mormonism, I can't think of anything else because Mormonism doesn't give you a good scaffolding for understanding the world or for acting in the world. When you're dehydrated, it tells you you have a demon in you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sort of in this space where I'm like, well, I guess it's not literally true. I guess it's not literally true because if it were literally true that God gave us his power. And so we have a special connection with God and that I went to the people who had that special connection with God and they didn't give me what I needed. I mean, that's a, as clear of a test as you could possibly get. They've since gotten around this elder president or Irene or however we refer to him. Irene gave a talk recently, I think about how it's really important to have faith not to be healed. Like that's like the next level of faith is like, it's like you, you can have faith to be healed, but if you have faith not to be healed, that's like extra because like, that's your, that's a test. Oh my right? gosh. So it's like, we can't heal people. <laughs> so you have to have faith to know that it doesn't matter. Right. But at that point, my entire world is Mormon, mm-hmm. right? My family, my extended family for generations is Mormon. At this point in my life, I think I'm 20, 22 years old. I don't think I know a single person that is not Mormon. And that's not because I'm actively avoiding those people. It's because I live in fucking Utah. It's your environment. 
That's my environment. That's the water that I swim in. And I, at this point, there's no resource. Like I haven't found like Mormon stories or any of the, or like any of the, the ideas about how to maybe be a little bit nuanced Mormon. I'm just like, okay, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not literal. Maybe it's mythic. Maybe there's a way that I can sort of engage with this construct of Mormonism that where I don't have to deny it or exit it or do anything, but I can just sort of soften my approach to it and use it mythically. Mm -hmm. And so I try that for a couple of years, right? I kind of go the route of the church isn't true, but maybe it's good. Okay. But then what that sort of means, then if the church isn't true, but it's good, then as a member of that church, it's incumbent on me to make sure that it is good and to help it become better. Right. So if there are things that could be better about the church because it's not literally true, then maybe I can start to sort of push it that direction. And one of the things, if I, if I, that then puts me in a position of I'm now going to examine this world that I live in and I'm going to make moral judgment calls about what is good about that world and what's not. And when I looked at the LDS world, one of the things that I saw that I felt like wasn't good was their treatment of women. Yeah. Because what I saw is that even though women are, are treated better in the LDS church than they are in polygamous groups, the only reason that they are, the only real difference is that the men are choosing to treat them better. They don't actually have any more authority or power to protect themselves or to act for themselves in the LDS church than they have in the polygamous church. Because in both, they're denied priesthood. Mm -hmm. And the priesthood is the power to govern, right? That's the power to actually do things that matter. And so it doesn't really matter how nice we are to women in the LDS church. It doesn't really matter how many nice, how many great things we say about them during conference. Functionally, they have no power. And so they rely entirely on the goodwill of the men around them, on their good behavior to have any influence. And unfortunately, Mormonism does not train men well on how to interact and treat and empower women because yeah. it tells them from the time they're, they're teenagers, from the time that they're babies, you get to have the power of God and they don't. And if you tell a fragile male psyche from the time that they're 11, that they get to have the super secret special power of God and their friends who are girls don't. Yeah. What do you expect is going to happen? And then on the flip side with the women, we were told your job is to have babies. That's your only job is to become That's a mother. Your only job. And so then you have women who are struggling with infertility and feel like they have failed at their only job in Mormonism. And it's just really damaging. It's really damaging. Or you have women who have, who have children who shouldn't have children. Right. Right. Yeah. Not because they, they're, but because that wasn't, that wouldn't have actually been their life path. I or can't too many. tell you, or too many. I can't tell you how many amazing ex-Mormon women I know who feel trapped and betrayed into having children that they didn't want to have. Yeah. That is a tragic position to be in. That's tragic for them and it's tragic for those kids because kids deserve to be born into families that are like stoked to have them, mm -hmm. not into families that are like, well, we just had you because God told us to. 
Yeah. I sort of see that. And so right as, right as that's happening, I'm living in St. George at this, at this point, I'm kind of like, I don't really love this, the way that we're treating women. And then that's when, uh, there's like the wear pants to school, wear pants to church movement and the ordained women movement starts. Mm -hmm. So there's this big thing where, uh, some women are like, Hey, let's just, let's all get together and we'll wear pants to church. And which should not have been a deal at all. Like there's no, but it became a huge deal. Yeah. Where everyone's like, like the fact that wearing pants is a statement shows you just how bad and toxic that culture is. Right. So that's happening. My wife wears pants to church. I also wear pants to church, but I'm all, I'm, I think I wore like a purple tie or something in solidarity. Uh And then we find out about, um, Kate Kelly and the ordained women movement. So for those of you who don't know, Kate Kelly was a, a member of the LDS church. She wanted to have the priesthood or she at least wanted the prophet to ask about why women can't have the priesthood. Like, let's just ask. And I heard about that and I was like, that is a great idea. We should do that immediately. One of the pieces of Mormon theology that we don't use as well as we could is the idea of continuing revelation where we literally, we claim that we have a dude whose sole job is to just talk to God. Yeah. We should be using that. We should be having that dude ask some questions to God. And one of those questions should be, I thought, why don't we ordain women? We should, we should a hundred percent. That's not even, of course we should because we, women are 50% of this church population. They do 80% of the work easily and they have no voice. The only voice that they have is the voice that any male leader will give them. Mm-hmm. And there are some male leaders who do a wonderful job encouraging those. Vo- but even them, even those wonderful male leaders, that is indicative of the problem because women shouldn't need to have men give them permission and encouragement and support in order for their voices to be heard. They should just have power to say whatever they want and to act for their interests. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I'm like, yeah, let's go with, let's go, Kate Kelly. I am there. Um, And after a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of tries, they announced that they're excommunicating her, right? This was, I think, in uh, summer of 2014. And uh, when they announced that they're excommunicating her, they also announced that they're excommunicating somebody named John DeLynn. And I'm like, huh, who's this John DeLynn guy that's also <laughs> getting excommunicated along with my hero, Kate Kelly? John DeLynn. Oh, interesting. He has a podcast called Mormon Stories. What's that? Oh, oh, it's all a lie. Right. Because that's when I start to get exposed to things like the seer stone in a hat. Multiple first visions accounts. Um, uh, poly, like the, I, I knew about polygamy. I didn't know. I was told that, that Joseph Smith marrying teenagers, that that was a lie, that that was just something that the wicked Warren Jeffs did, that that wasn't, that wasn't the truth. That was a corruption of a true principle. Fact, historical fact. And, uh, so I'm learning all of this. And right at the same time, they're, they're publishing the, uh, gospel topics essays. So they're like, look, we finally have to talk about these things. So, um, sure. Uh, the book of Abraham wasn't actually what Joseph Smith said it was, but isn't it neat that he used that to channel something so cool? 
Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, just like ever that, what that means is that he would be a great young adult novelist, not a great prophet. Yeah. And, and for me, the final thing came with the, the, the essay about polygamy in Kirtland and Nauvoo. Cause in that essay, um, they finally admit after decades of denying it, after decades of excommunicating people who said that it was true, um, they say that they acknowledge that Joseph Smith married someone who was 14. And the line that's in there, and this is the, the line is important to me because what it indicated to me is that this was an organization that just didn't get it. Because what they say is Helen Mar Kimball was sealed to Joseph Smith several months before her 15th birthday. Yep. And that shows that you don't understand that not only are you not a good organization, you're a dangerous organization. You're a harmful organization that does not understand what is good and what is not good. And because there's only one correct response to what Joseph Smith did, and it's actually very easy to do. I can do it right now as the true prophet of Mormonism. Here's the proper response to Joseph Smith marrying children. Joseph Smith was a pedophile. We unequivocally denounce that practice. He was bad and shouldn't have done that. And he made up the rest of the stuff too. We apologize sincerely to any human who has been manipulated or taken advantage of in our church because of an appeal to Joseph Smith and what he did. That breaks our hearts. We are so sorry that it took us so long to acknowledge this. And we have a bunch of other things we want to acknowledge too. A response like that would have gone so far in healing the just the deep wounds that are that are just everywhere in Mormonism. And instead, what they did is they doubled down and they said, no, actually, in order to be Mormon, in order to be a believer in this one true church, you have to now believe in a God that tells 37-year-old men to marry children. And if that's the kind of God that you want to believe in, fuck you and your God. Yeah. The problem is, if they were to do something like that, they would just implode. And they have over $300 billion. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in their money and their power. Yep. Which is why I'm here. I'm here to basically hold them accountable as loudly as possible. Because I, I actually think, the, to me, the real tragedy there is that's a lot of money. And that's my money. And that's your money. Right? That money was stolen from my family for generations because they relied on a lie that Joseph Smith told and they continued to perpetuate that lie. And the real tragedy there is that's a lot of money that could do a lot of good. Like I was, I was driving around with my, my uh, oldest daughter a couple of weeks ago and we pass the temple and we have a little tradition. Every time we pass the temple, we flip it off because it's flipping us off. <laughs> and so we're just like, we're just returning, returning the energy. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, I'm just kind of like, it's, I'm getting ready for Burning Man. So like fires on my mind and I'm like, you know, it would be really cool. It would be really cool to burn down a temple legally. <laughs> I want to just 
be clear, to legally burn down a temple. Because think about how rad that would feel for everyone. We'd all just get stand around, watch it. It'd feel awesome. And and my daughter, she looks at me and she's like, Dad, or turn it into a community center. I was just going to say, Ben, no, let in all the homeless people. <laughs> and I would like, and I, that that clicked for me. And I was like, that is so tragic that an organization that claims to be Jesus Christ's church and is so rich and so powerful and has so many resources and assets to its name that they are not using those resources to help people. I think mm-hmm. about the last three years, the last three years, I don't know about for you, but for me, and I think most everyone, it has been a shit show, right? It has been a really, really hard, challenging world to navigate. And you know what would have made that a little bit easier? $150 billion. Right. Spent to make the world a better place. Do you know they, they, the LDA, I hate this. This makes me so angry because they're, 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 they are acting good, but it's just the bare minimum. When the, when the fires happened on Maui, right? The whole island is, is devastated. It's tragic. I have a good friend who lives there. Devastating, devastating. And the LDS church donated $1 million. Which sounds awesome. Oh my God, a million dollars. That's like point zero 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 one percent I think the number is they make $7 million annually just in tithing, not in any of their investments or their properties or anything like that. They could be doing so much good with that. And the fact that they aren't, I think that's a real indication of, of what is important to them. And what is important to them is the same thing that was important to Joseph Smith. Power, money, and sex. And so they try to control all those things. And they're bad dudes. They're not nice. They're not kindly. They're not grandfatherly and lovely. They are greedy and out of touch and cruel. I cannot think of anything more cruel than telling, this is Dallin Oaks. Dallin Oaks, this man is about to become prophet, although I will challenge him because I think that I'm, I think I would be a better prophet than he would be. This guy, when Nelson dies, Oaks is going to become prophet. And Oaks once told a bunch of teenage girls to cover their shoulders so they wouldn't become pornography. That was Oaks? No. That was Oaks. No. He said that. Yeah, he said that women who show their shoulders like me. So right now I'm considered walking pornography. Yeah, you are walking pornography while sitting pornography. (laughs) Yeah, that dude. Oh, man. I, I don't. In what world do we allow men like that to have the power that they do? Yeah. So vote for me this October. (laughs) With that, I feel like it's the perfect time for our Linda Listen statement. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) What's your Linda Listen? Linda, Linda, listen. You are in a cult. Mormonism is a cult. Every version of it. It was a lie. It started out because Joseph Smith lied about 
seen about finding gold plates. He never found them. He did not have them. He lied about seeing God. He didn't. He lied about an angel with a flaming sword coming to tell him to marry teenagers. He didn't. Can you imagine Linda? Linda, (laughs) think about this for just a second. If there's a God and that God has an angel with a flaming sword that he likes to send to earth to tell people to do shit, don't you think that he could have found something better to do in 1830s America? Like, I don't know, slavery or genocide or the oppression of women. That the angel couldn't have maybe gone to like President Jackson and said, hey, if you wipe out, if you take all these Cherokee people and take them off their land and send them on a death march, I will stab you with this flaming sword. No, the real thing that he had to go do was go to Joseph Smith and tell Joseph Smith, hey, you have got to marry this 14-year-old right now or I'll stab you. Really, Linda? That's the dude that started your religion. That's the person that you're going to worship as a near deity. Linda, Linda, let it go. You were lied to. I know that it sucks. Oh my God, it sucks so bad. You were lied to for hundreds of years. I'm sorry. You were lied to. That's not true. Come out, come out because I promise you out here is beautiful. It's safe. The people are lovely. All of those, because all of those lies that you were told about the origins of this religion, you were also told about the people who are out here because the world isn't wicked, Linda. The world is actually a beautiful, lovely, connected, fantastic place full of good humans who will just take care of you and nurture you and they want the best for you. They want you to kind of sparkle and shine and be your beautiful, chaotic self. And all of that has been repressed in Mormonism because you've been told there's only one right way to be. And that's bullshit. That's not true. We don't need you to be like everyone else, Linda. We need you to be like you. There's a part of your soul that's unexpressed, that wants to kind of sparkle and shine and be itself. And we need that. We need you out here, Linda. And we want you out here. So let it go. It's a lie. Sucks to get lied to. I get it. Let it go. Come on. Step out here. Come play with the rest of us. We have coffee. It's great. And with that, folks, that was Prophet King Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And now Prophet King Benjamin is on the road doing his comedy. It's great. He is out of the cult. He is spreading the word. He is spreading awareness, giving people laughs as he goes. And definitely go follow him over on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, The Fresh King Benjamin, and his website, thefreshkingbenjamin.com, where you can book him if you would like. I can't. I do birthday parties. I do corporate events. Nice. I do just one-on-one comedy. If you like, want me to just come directly to you and tell you jokes, super awkward, but I'll do it. That's awesome. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? I think the final thought that I have is I, I want to just express um, some gratitude to you, um, Shalise, for creating the space for for people to have conversations about cults. And the dangers that they are in our, in our, cause it's not just Mormonism, right? There, there are, they're everywhere. And I know that that is anytime we start to speak out and we start to sort of share uh, a perspective about a, about a worldview that's 
harmful or dangerous, we're always going to get haters from that worldview. And so I just want to thank you for, for dealing with that and for holding that space and for creating the, the container to have conversations like these, because I think that they're really important because there are a lot of humans that have been bamboozled and trapped and, and we need them. We want them. We want them to come out here and play with us. And it's conversations like this that make that possible. So thank, thanks to you for just creating this really awesome space. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I feel like anytime a troll leaves a comment about something, whether it's Mormonism or another cult, it gives me a better angle to speak about it the next time as to avoid those specific comments. So thank you for making my pitch against these cults even stronger. Trolls, (laughs) I appreciate you. (laughs) Thank you, trolls. (laughs) Thank you, trolls. Um, But this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. There were so many other things I wanted to get into, but we just, we had a limited amount of time. So thank you for coming on. Maybe in the future, we'll have you on again. And um, yeah, yeah. and guys, if you want to support the podcast, liking, sharing, commenting is a really great way to help the algorithm. And we officially have merch. I'm so excited. We launched it yesterday at our little 100k party on our live. And um, you can find it on the store. There's like a little tab that says store. Some of it is available. Some of it, the algorithm didn't let pass through because there's some profanity. (laughs) It was an idea that we got from one of our guests and people are loving it. So if you want to see the Colts to Consciousness merch after dark, go to coltstoconsciousness.com, click on the merch tab. It'll take you to the full store. So that would be amazing if you could support in that way, get a cool t-shirt or a hat or a hoodie. And um, you could also become a patron if that's something that you'd like to do, our own little special community. And thank you to our newest patrons, Fresnel and Stacy. Really appreciate you coming out and supporting in that way. So if you like this episode, guys, I will leave a few down here below that you can check out. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious, and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.